Hey, good morning and welcome to Breakthrough Walls. I'm Ken Walls and I'm your host. Today I have a very incredibly special guest on the show. His name is Laban Ditchburn. He was referred to me by the inimitable Jim Cathcart. And this guy is a freaking rock star. So do yourself and your friends and your family all a big favor. Grab your phone. Well, you're already on your phone probably. So share this thing out. Share it out so everybody has a chance to hear Laban's story. Stay with us. We will be right back. We are back. Let me bring Laban on the show. Laban, welcome. Ken Walls. I'm breaking through walls with you today, brother. Good to see you, and thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here, dude. So you you sound like you have maybe a southern Indiana accent. Well, I I don't know if I was to talk like if I was from North America, but maybe I'd be from the (laughs) south somewhere. I'm not quite sure. Is that, is that close? <laughs> no, no, that was horrible. Don't don't try that again. Uh-huh. What if I'm from New York? Uh-huh. Are you talking to me? Uh-huh. How am I funny? Oh, that's it's uh, Danny. That's uh, that Joe Pesci. Sorry. Oh, Lord. That's funny, man. So, so Laban, I um, as you know, I started this show about four years ago. I've interviewed four hundred and fifty-ish people, celebrities, entrepreneurs, and Um, You know, I started this for very selfish reasons. I was stuck in life. And I thought, you know what, if I just listen to enough people tell their story, maybe I'll find mine in there somewhere. And and it's been amazing, man. So I'm excited to have you on. I'm very grateful to Jim for referring you over to me. And, um, you know, I, I, I always like to start with where were you born and raised? So why don't we start there, man? Where were you born and raised? Well, before I get stuck into that, I've got to say 450 plus episodes. For those who don't understand how much work goes into what Ken is doing, it is unbelievable. So you should be so proud. And, and I think you're doing what a lot of successful people are doing because it works. So if you're looking a little bit lost, because it's exactly what I did. Born and raised in a town called Christchurch in New Zealand, or Nueva Zelandia, as they say in Spanish. And uh, to a New Zealand mother, Gail, and my Australian radio announcer father, Rick Ridiculous, was one of his names when he was on the radio, and that's where I spent the first 19 years of my life. In New Zealand? What is, is Christchurch where the big airport is? Is that... Uh, the, the the big thing that's there is the earthquakes. <laughs> like, oh, really? If you remember in 2011 and 2012, they had uh, a huge number of earthquakes that flattened the whole city practically and had a couple of hundred people that unfortunately lost their lives. But oh. uh, it's a very seismic part of the world and uh, a beautiful part of the world, but it's got its own challenges like a lot of places around the world also. Sure, sure. So you had 
your father was Australian? Yeah, he, he got a job uh, that his sister found in, in a newspaper uh, in Christchurch. He was living in Melbourne in Australia, which is where he was born. And he, he moved over there and met my mother pretty shortly after he arrived. She rung up and requested hot chocolate, uh, you sexy thing, on the radio. And they struck up a, <laughs> a relationship. And three months later, they moved in together. So it's, oh, uh, it's, a, great, it's a great romance. Wow, that's so awesome, man. So did you I, I, did you bounce back and forth between Australia and New Zealand, or did you did you pretty much stay in New Zealand? No, I, I got a job when I was twenty, Ken. I, when I was uh, working as an expat in Bangkok, of all places, and I was grossly underqualified for this position. I worked for a relocation company. I lasted about six months, and while I was over there, my father rung me up and said, uh, "Your stepmother and I have just broken up, and I'm moving from Christchurch to." to Melbourne, Australia, where he was born. And so I, I, I moved back to New Zealand and then six months later moved across to Australia. My father bought a plane ticket with his last 800 bucks and said, come to Melbourne, son, it's the land of milk and honey. And that's where I spent uh, the next 20 years minus a 12-month period uh, in the UK. Wow. So in, in you spent the next 20 years in Australia? <clears throat> wow. Yeah. So what was it like? Because because uh, New Zealand's, I mean, it's not huge, right? I mean, it's it's pretty small little country. Um, what was it like growing up there? I uh, well, it's like the <laughs> you got nothing to compare it to, right? Yeah. It's a ve- for those who don't know, it's like an it's an English speaking country. It's very developed uh, infrastructure wise. Growing up in New Zealand, we were very fortunate, very blessed in many ways. We got access to so much natural beauty and, and it was clean and pristine in most parts of the country for a long time. But one of the things, one of the, the challenges about growing up in New Zealand, and New Zealanders, Australians and the English in particular struggle from this, it's that they diminish their own greatness and they really celebrate tall poppy syndrome. Now, tall poppy syndrome is basically, you know, in, in the US... Ego is something that's a bit more received and, and, you know, they celebrate the champion of the football team and that kind of thing. Yeah. It's kind of like knocking someone down so that they're the same height as everyone else. You're chopping the, top, the poppy down so it's the same size as the bunch, right? Yeah. And, and this, this is something that I learned was a huge problem in society and, and causes a whole litany of other challenges that we can talk about uh, as the show goes, if you like. Yeah. yeah. So, so you... Uh they th- that's the uh crabs in a bucket thing right so pull everybody down so they stay here with you on this level so so you went to school there i, I don't know what they they call it high school and probably same close to the same right um did you go to college or university no i uh so just i mean to really answer your question i grew up uh, as a child of divorce can mum and dad split up when i was three and a half and and with the benefit of hindsight, I'm grateful that they did. They would have ended up uh, killing each other, I'm sure. And I think that nearly happened a few times. Mum grew up in a very dysfunctional environment. The, the, the daughter uh, with three siblings, uh, the daughter of a, a, a horribly abusive alcoholic. My father grew up as a child of a loveless marriage and, and uh, a very weak man and sort of married a domineering woman and it was just a, a recipe for disaster. 
the effect that divorce had on me was really the catalyst for a lot of the dysfunction that I experienced. It was a lot of abandonment at time and, and not being adequately esteemed in the way that a child might need to be a functional adult. And it reared itself into uh, a lot of escapism behaviour. You know, at, when I was young, it was computer games and TV. And then as I got older, it was drinking and drugs and gambling and sex and all the other Charlie Sheen-esque type things. Uh, from a school point of view, when you, when you grow up in that environment, you are forced to grow up very quickly. Yeah. And I write about this in my book. I've got lots of fond memories and some not so fond of like cycling nine miles uh, to school. <laughs> like, um, wow. And as a six-year-old following my older brother and, and uh, like just things that these days parents would be thrown in jail for, you know, like yeah. um, a lot of it taught me lots of great things. But, but growing up in, in poverty, like we had nothing and and that which which is not a problem, but what was worse was the poverty mindset and not believing you could get anything. And these are all things that I've had to deal with. Academically, I was a disaster zone. I got I failed high school twice. I got two identical scores in science and economics two years in a row with the wow. same curriculum. So wow. But but when I look back, Ken, my ability to be not in fight or flight because of how traumatic my child, my, my home life was, it, there's no wonder. It's, it's, it's a miracle that I even did as good as I did. You know, I passed English was the only subject I passed. And, uh, and, and it's not because I'm stupid. It's far from it. But I have zero formal qualifications. Right. Zero. Right. So, but, right. but I'm evidence that you don't need that. Right. Yep. I, I'm with you, man. So, so you, you ended up in Australia and, um, what did you do once you got there? What, what was your, what career did you pursue? So I fell into sales, like a lot of extroverts and got a job working with a company called Census who were, uh, the yellow and white pages back in the day, long before search engines came around. Right. And I, and I did really good. I was earning about a hundred grand a year back in the early two thousands, which was a lot of money back in Australia. And, uh, and that, that funded my degeneracy. Um, I, <laughs> I did that for a while. It was, I knew that it, that it wasn't what I was on the planet to do. I'd, I'd always known as a young man, Ken, that I'd had, uh, I, was, I was bound for much greater things, but I was so numbed out from the drinking and the partying and, and the girls and all the other stuff that I was just oblivious to what it was. And then I fell into recruitment. I did technology recruitment from 2006 until 2000, until the end of 2019. And, and I would achieve success with these things at times. But uh, doing a job that you do not love is the, the biggest waste of energy that you can possibly expend. And so that you spend so much of the time trying to find other ways of escaping and TGIF and, you know, looking forward to vacations away and that kind of thing. But uh, I'm very blessed to be able to stand before you and your amazing audience to share that I've been able to finally step into my greatness and figure out what I'm on this planet to do. And I know that I'm well on my way to being known as the world's most positively influential speaker by being the world's best courage coach. That's awesome, man. So, so when you go back to when... Cause I can, man, I can relate. I can relate to so much The you know, you talked about, um, 
here you were making a hundred thousand a year deep inside you felt like you said in throughout your life you felt like there was so much more available to you but you still had the what do you call it the tall poppy syndrome where people are trying to keep you at a lower level your entire childhood basically um how prevalent was the um imposter syndrome like where you 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 felt deep inside like i know there's more i'm capable of more but you know th th that imposter syndrome kept you down how 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 prevalent was that throughout your life as an adult so the, well this there's, there's a couple of other components that need to be really brought up to to give context because I mentioned my father was a radio announcer and he was very successful in his own right at one okay. point in time. But through self-sabotage and divorce and child support payment stuff, it eventually wore the man down. And he ended up retiring a couple of years ago with nothing. The, the, wow. dis the destructive behaviours that I picked up from my parents were, were what I was dealing with at that time. I didn't have any role models of success. I had no financial role models in either side of my family. No one that I knew had any money apart mm. from, you know, some friends, parents or whatever. I never had any of those role models. And as a result, I used the only thing that worked for me back then, which was self-deprecating humor. And I would seek validation by denigrating myself and doing stupid things, right? Yeah. And of course, no one's laughing with you with that stuff. They're laughing at you. And another thing that's really important to, to mention as well, both mum and dad absolutely love them and for, have forgiven them. And I'm super appreciative of the amazing attributes that I did get, uh, which have helped me in this journey of life. And, and, uh, and I've learned to reframe this stuff. None of this stuff is operating from a victim mindset, right. in case that's not abundantly clear. But, but for me, really... Like, I had no purpose. I had no meaning. Like, I wasn't operating from a place of service. And I was nice to people. And, and people would comment, you know, like, you know, Laban, you know, you seem like you're such a nice person. You say happy birthday on Facebook and do all those things. But below the surface of it all, Ken, I was a deeply wounded man and, and, uh, and struggling immensely at that time. Wow. So, so you got into technology recruitment, right? And how old were you then? 26. 26. So how long did you do that? So 12 years and then a year oh. as an entrepreneur. And that was at the start of 2019. It was a few months after I met my now wife. I made the decision to go out on my own. And Anna got pregnant and ended up going through an ectopic pregnancy that nearly killed her the same time as I'm going out on my own. So we're dealing with that. Wow. And the year of 2019, from a recruitment point of view, was a total unmitigated financial disaster, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and, and bear in mind, my healing journey started in 2016, uh, sorry, 2015, when I was found myself gambling on a horse race in a country I wasn't in, uh, you know, spending money that wasn't mine and uh, realizing that my life was spiraling out of control and I got access to a, a gambler's counselor through the gambling help helpline and that started this journey of success. 
And, uh, you know, like I said, August 26, 2022, I'll be celebrating my sixth year of sobriety, and, and uh, which is my wife's birthday, incidentally, wow. and, uh, and longer for the drugs and alcohol. But, but 2019, I was like, right, I'm free of the shackles, you know, and then uh, didn't do a single placement, didn't make a single dime from recruitment in the year liquidated all of my 401k financially ended up completely and utterly destitute right i i was in the worst place ever and i was like i've been doing everything that i could to try and be a good citizen yeah and and what i what i realized later on ken is that it ended up being the greatest blessing in disguise ever i spent a lot of that time researching and reading all the stuff that's of interest to me all the healing all nutrition and you know, because I had an autoimmune disease that I was able to, to figure out and put into full remission through, you know, just dietary intervention. And, and I've got all this, all these skill sets and all this amazing stuff that's now coming to the fray now that I'm living my purpose. Wow. That's so awesome, dude. So um, I, August 10th, I celebrate 20 years of sobriety, by the way. Oh, man. Congratulations, by the yeah, way. Yeah, man. It's, it's so good. One day at a time. <laughs> so that, that's awesome. I knew, I knew we had a lot in common. So, so, so 2019, you didn't, didn't make a single penny. Thank God for 2020, because that's when the world got really good. <laughs> so so I, I ate a lot of humble pie, took a job back working for another company in February of 2020, right? Wow. And in March, my wife and I went across to South Australia from Victoria and Melbourne. We were living to the Professional Speakers Association uh, annual conference. And I made hay. I knew that I wanted to be a speaker. And yeah. at that point, Ken, I had no book. I had no podcast. I was not doing really any coaching of any significance. I had no credibility from a speaking and coaching point of view, right? So we go to this event and we witness in real time uh, COVID hitting and all the professional speakers losing what was tens of millions of dollars worth of bookings. Yeah. The whole, it was the Sunday and people are just like standing out in the, in the outside of the area of the conference room, just like in tears with all these cancellations coming through. So we come back to Melbourne and then we go into full lockdown. My job was made redundant. I lost my job after seven weeks. And because and I, I had been working my own business, I never qualified for any of the financial relief that was being offered to everyone at that time, right? Wow. And I was like, I had four paid speaking engagements, like $400 a day that were all cancelled. And I was like, how am I going to get my message out there, man? So I was like, the podcast. And I'd made enough connections at the speaking conference to invite the first half a dozen and then I knew like you Ken that I needed to be around people that were achieving what I wanted to achieve and I was like and through my through my 2019 experience I was forced to reach out to CEOs of business and I'd had some conversations with CEOs of relatively big companies so I'd had some experience reaching out and cold calling and and I reached out to Les Brown now, for those who don't know who Les Brown is, he's regarded as the greatest motivational speaker, living or dead, right? Whatever you think of that or not, he's, he's damn good. He's good. And I got his phone gotta number. Gotta be hungry. Gotta be hungry. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I got his phone number, Ken, and I, and I rung him up. And on a Saturday morning, in my bed, butt naked, he picks up the phone and I 
bounce out of bed and I'm butt naked standing on the window and the construction guys across there have got a big aisle and stuff. And Les picks up the phone and he says, hello, and that beautiful voice of his. And I said, Les Brown? He said, yes, it is. I said, Les Brown? It's Laban Ditchburn from Melbourne, Australia here. He said, well, hi, Laban. What can I do for you? I said, Les, I'm a huge fan of your work and I'm the host of an, an amazing podcast series called Become Your Own Superhero. And I'd love for you to come on, be a special guest to share your message with our amazing audience. When are you available? <laughs> and he goes, well, what are you thinking, boy? And I said, to be honest, Les, whenever you're available, it probably works with me. And he came on at Tuesday midnight, about four <laughs> days later, which is because it was Monday afternoon for him. Yeah. And he came on, Ken. And, and I said, Les, even before we started recording, we had a bit of small talk about his hair and stuff. And I said, Les, what do you think of the name of the show, Become Your Own Superhero? And he just absolutely nailed it, right? It was just everything I hoped people would think when they heard the name. And I was so endeared by his response. And if you haven't heard of Les Brown, once you finish watching this, get on YouTube and just search for Les Brown, spelled the way it sounds. And I was so moved by this guy, Ken, that I just verbally diarrheaed my story of transformation to him. And I concluded by saying, you know, and it'll be four years at that time since I'd given up drink and stuff. I didn't know that he'd gone through his own uh, prescription medication addiction that his doctors had actually put him on. And he said to me, Laban, do you have a book? And I went, no. He said, Laban, if you're going to be a speaker, you need a book for credibility. And then he said to me, Ken, he goes, who was the most influential person in your life when you were five? And I thought about it for a minute and I was like, damn it. Despite her many flaws, it'd be my darling mother. Yeah. And he said, what attributes did you get from your mum? And I was like, oh, man, she was like tenacious and spiritual and unconditionally loving. And like, he's writing all this stuff down. Ken, he looks up at me. He said, Laban, this is a God moment. He said, I'm going to show you how to monetize your passion. And for the next five minutes, he reads back to me the blueprint for this book that he wants me to write called Bet on You. And over my left shoulder, you can see a copy of this book. He said, Laban, you're going to write the book. You're going to turn the book into a keynote. You're going to turn the keynote into a three-day retreat. He said, even if you muck this up, you're going to make 200 grand in the next 12 months. And then he said, Ken, and I'm going to write the foreword for your book. Wow. Right? This is, so this is mid-May 2020. Now, bear in mind, I never finished school, never went to college, never had any experience writing anything really of any significance. I said, less in a moment of complete insanity. I said, Les, if you're going to write the foreword for my book, I'll have it to you by June 30, 2020. And in six weeks, I wrote 30,000 words of the first draft and delivered it on a, to his inbox as promised and completely transformed my life in the process. Les came through with his word. He wrote the most wonderful foreword. He came onto my virtual book launch last year and has since become a dear friend. We had dinner at his house in Atlanta a couple of months ago. And... Uh, that's what happens when you break through your own walls, Ken. Dude, that is so awesome. I mean, that's awesome, awesome, awesome. So you, am I hearing you right? When So Les was your very first podcast guest? He was number 10. Oh, okay. But he was the, he was the first major guest. Like I had yeah. a number of professional speakers that I'd become friends with uh, in Australia that were that were significant in their own right but no one of that you know i had 10 subscribers on youtube and if he'd asked me how many subscribers i would have been ashamed to tell him i would have told him but he didn't ask he knew that that something something was supposed to happen and 
This is just how he operates. If you know anything about Les Brown, right? Dude, that is that is awesome on so many levels. So many levels. So so you you wrote the book in in six weeks. You had the book. Grab grab your book. Can you grab? Do you have a copy? Yeah. For those that are watching, you can see I'm wearing board shorts. I'm in Mexico. It's it's very warm. <laughs> there Look we go. at that, man! That is so awesome. I love that cover, dude. You can see the resemblance. I love it. Yeah, I love that, man. So, so talk about a little bit about the book. I mean, what what all did you what did you write about? And you know, and, and again, I want to bring up imposter syndrome because here I, I've been through the same process, man. And, and, you know, you're writing a book and you're like, I'm a high school dropout. I didn't finish 12th grade. And, and, and you know, I, I get everything you're saying. The imposter syndrome is real. And so you're writing this book, Bet on You. You're broke at the time, right? De you have no idea, destitute. <laughs> I know. Oh, trust me. I do. I understand. <laughs> so, so, so you, but you write this book anyway, in spite of all of the evidence, the war, what the world might call as insanity, maybe um, you're writing a book about bet on you. What did you write about? What are, what are the chapter titles? What did you write about? So it's a great question, and, and uh, it was kind of force majeure, Ken, because we were in, in the lockdowns, the strictest lockdowns in the world at the time, if not, you know, like on par with what happened in Shanghai recently. But I, what I wanted to write was, and I wrote from here, and I wrote the way that I speak, and I think for, for people that are looking to write a book or that are, you know, want to produce something, write how you talk and, and write for other people but write it like no one's going to read it like so you can bear all and i and i i wrote what i hoped i would have found 10 years before i hit my own rock bottom ken and and just to, for humor or you know so these are some of the um the first half a dozen chapters my two queens how to hit rock bottom the dragon chaser morgan freeman and mick dundee generosity the cocaine olympics uh, police cops, the angel of death, ma massive erections, how to avoid jail rape. <laughs> oh my God. So, so it's a memoir self-help book and, uh, and I've deliberately left nothing on the table with regards to my own uh, experiences. And it's not, it's not about trying to toot my own horn because it's all about reclaiming all of the ownership. If I was to ever run for president, like that, there'd be no dirt on me because it's all in the book, right? Right. And there's something really healing about getting it all out there. It's very cathartic reclaiming ownership of your lost power. And that's something that I would really encourage people to think about. Like, you know, what people think of us, like Les Brown says, is none of our business. And, uh, you know, no one wants to hear your, your dramas. You know, 90%... Uh, don't want to hear it and 10% are glad it's happening to you kind of thing. Um, but I just wrote something that I knew would entertain. Storytelling is a really effective way of making it sticky, whatever you're sharing. And it's just a powerfully entertaining, uh, inspiring book and not just my opinion. That's so awesome, man. So 
you know, and I normally save this for the end, but we're, I, I want to ask this, this question in your opinion, you know, people, it, 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 it always, it always blows me away how, um, people don't show up for their own lives. They stay on the sidelines and, and watch life happen. <clears throat> what in in your opinion and the number one answer to this is fear so you have to do better than that but what in your opinion what do you think stops people from experiencing number one real financial success and and number two real freedom and and happiness joy in life and and i do think that those two things are related i've been broken homeless and i've been wealthy and Broken homeless sucks. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so what? Do, what do you think stops people from really engaging in life? Well, I think I think fear is a great top level answer, but it, it's it's more ingrained in that. It's like a fear of success and a fear of failure. It's it's really being concerned about what people will think of them, and because. Um, if you think about post-World War II, right, everyone had, you know, they never spoke about the, the dramas at home, stiff upper lip in the UK as well. Yeah. You know, abuse at home was just kept at home and it caused so many issues, man. And I don't know, it's just one of those things like I just got to a point where I stopped caring what people thought of me. I stopped trying to please everyone because in trying to please everyone, I, I didn't please anyone. Like, right. and I was, and you, you like, you need to polarize people in your life. Otherwise you're a dang, particularly if you're a male, you are dangerous if you are liked by everyone, because there's some under massive underlying issues taking place that are dangerous. The moment you get challenged and, uh, and I don't, I never trust anyone that is liked by everyone because there's a dark side to them. We've all got them. Yep. And, and, and all, all I can suggest is that you just be true to yourself. You know what I mean? I'm not talking about telling people what to do. I don't tell people they need to go give up alcohol or drugs or whatever. You've got to do whatever's right for you. But I promise you, once you get those things under control, you can live a, you can live a way more productive life. You're way, you're way more likely to, to attract higher quality people that will uh, want to lift you up as opposed to dragging you down. And now I choose to associate with people that you know, particularly if I'm learning from them that have already achieved what I want to achieve. If I want to create wealth, I'd be around wealthy people with a strong caveat that they are doing it in a heart-centered way. I'm not working with people that are running Ponzi schemes or any of this other stuff. There is a lot of really high-quality humans out there. you just got to seek them out and, be, and surround yourself with them because we become scientifically and earn within a few thousand dollars of the five or six people we spend the most time around. Yeah. You become like the five people that you spend the time around and the books that you read in five years or something like that, right? I think it might even be a Brian Tracy thing. Yep. yep. And, uh, and so, and I've become really ruthless at setting clear boundaries about who I allow in my life. And as a result, Ken, all of my former circle of friends, bar a few people, have nothing to do with me now. And it's yep. not that they're bad people. It's just that this, what's become way more important for me so, you know, you talk about imposter syndrome. I still have um, periods in my life. But when you go around calling yourself the world's best courage coach, right, and then you remove all negative self-talk, 
As soon as you do that, you become hyper aware of how other people talk. And so I don't associate with people that use negative self-talk. Why would you say that about yourself? What yep. gives me the right to write a book? What gives me the right to have a podcast to, to, and have a mastermind that has Jim Cathcart and Les Brown and Waldo Waldman and a number of amazing people in it? What gives me the right? Well, yep. I give me the right. I know the good work that I can do in the world by being around these people. Right? I, I know what I can achieve by allowing myself to step into my greatness and it allows me and to create abundance in all forms, particularly financial, allows me to help more people. All right? You can't help anyone if you can't help yourself. Amen. Amen, amen, and amen. And you just named off a bunch of people that um, I'm friends with. <laughs> like, they're, they're, and they're incredible humans. You know, I think that when I, when I, I, want, I want to ask you, like, when you wrote the book, Les wrote the foreword to your book, right? Les Brown. And, and I mean, that's not where, that's not where it ends. I mean, you, you know, you, now you have to sell the book. You have to get people to buy the book, read it, um, which is a very small percentage of people that actually do read it. Um, where did things go after you got the book out and, 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 and you, how, how did you market it? What, how did you get people to read your book, buy your book? Well, it's, it only came out late in 2021, Ken. Okay. We, uh, you know, it, being in, in lockdown in Australia for like nearly two years was some of the most challenging period of our life. In the meantime, my wife and I, you know, I talk about the ectopic. Her and I have collectively had 16 consecutive miscarriages. Two of those are ectopics. So we've been going through that. She went through a period of uh, resigning from a former job because of bullying and then was able to get another great job. And so we've been balancing all of this. In the meantime, to protect our medical freedoms, we exited Australia uh, and are now basing ourselves in Mexico of all places. And uh, it's beautiful here, by the way. So we've, we've had all these other things to balance in the meantime. And, um, but when the book, the book came out, you know, the publisher that I work with, we did a collaborative publishing deal, which means I get to retain all the rights and stuff. And they did a really magnificent job of, you know, uh, proofing it and, and doing all the formatting, making the, the quality of the content really great. But we, uh, they, they neglected to email really important information about doing a successful book launch i never it's my first book i never had any experience and and i'd ask lots of people so when the book was due to come out we never had any launch strategy but within a few days we were able to get a hundred plus people for a virtual with people like les brown to come on and wallow waldman these amazing guys that you know you know and uh and a bunch of friends of mine and we just we just got it out and now every opportunity i get to tell someone about the book uh, in the street, when we were in, in the States a few months ago, I was giving copies occasionally or selling copies to my Uber driver or the Lyft driver or whatever, if they would share something with me that I knew the book maybe could add a bit of value, particularly if they've gone through addiction of any form as well. So right. I'm, I'm determined to make this book so available to so many people that it, that it eventually gets referred on to that be so good that they can't ignore me. Right, and I'm going to continue to write books, but this this one's a good one, and wildly entertaining. That's awesome, man! Hold the book up again so everybody can yeah, see. Yeah, sure. If it just jumped on. 
bet on you. That's I love the cover, man. It's so awesome. So so, and it's available, Ken, in my dulcet tones on Audible, which I was able to do when I was stuck in Germany last year as well. But that's another story. Well, you know, talk a little bit about that because you were you you did you did um, you got out of Australia. Um, I, did you? Did, ha, you had to take a raft or something, right? I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, but, pretty but, much. Yeah. Uh, Anna, Anna is Russian born, and she's an Australian citizen. And she had to go back uh, in September last year to testify against the perpetrator that was responsible for some childhood sexual abuse, uh, which is linked to where these miscarriages have all come from. Wow. And. Uh, you know, she's, she's, I might be the world's best courage coach, Ken, but she's the most courageous person I know. So we had to get special permits to leave the country. So she, hers was rejected the first time by the Australian government, right? They knew that she'd been subpoenaed by the Russian police. This sounds like a movie, by the way. This is legitimately happening. Wow. And so the requirements for leaving the country were we had to be out of the country for at least three months. Now, Anna and I weren't married at that point, so there's no way the Russian government would have approved a visa for me to get in in time, right? She had to go right. within a few days. So I, I'm like, what am I going to do? And so my publisher, her husband, was a lawyer, and they drafted a letter demanding that I be made available to uh, in Germany to the Frankfurt International Book Fair, Right. The Australian government rejected my first two applications and then the third one went through. So I wow. fly to Germany. I go to Frankfurt. Anna's in Russia. She, the, the case doesn't go to trial because it's outside of the statute of limitations, and, but she's having some other breakthrough work and reconnected with her mother and all this other amazing stuff. She meets a gynecologist who's like, we can help you. She's like, come and meet me in Russia. I post my, my passport back to Australia via Express Post, and the very next day, right, the Russian uh, government shut the borders because of the COVID restrictions. So here I am. I can't get to Russia. I can't go back to Australia. I've got no passport. And so I reached out to a friend of mine. I was like, I'm going to get my audio book down here. So I was like, do you know anyone? <laughs> you happen to know wow. someone? This guy, um, Eric Wittenberg, who's like one of Europe's top recording. He recorded Elton John's audio book in his own voice. This guy's an amazing dude. And, but in the meantime, I'm stuck in Germany for a month waiting for my other passport to come back from Australia. Wow. And, then, and then we're like, where are we going to meet? And so we looked and Mexico was the only place that didn't have any restrictions for medical freedom stuff and and uh so blessed to be able to we re reunited in, in october late october and hadn't seen each other for like seven weeks which is the longest we've ever spent wow. and uh you can imagine it was an emotional reunion so um uh yeah this is this is my life and it's and it's pretty entertaining so, it sounds and you're living in mexico now we live in the beautiful uh, Riviera Maya section of Playa del Carmen, which is it's like about an hour from Miami. It's paradise. We've got iguanas in the tree across from me and like coconut trees. And, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm only wearing a jacket for, for you today, Ken. I don't really wear clothing otherwise because it's too damn hot. Yeah, I've heard it's hot down there. So, so you, um, you now have the title of world's best courage coach where did 
did did that come about when you were were doing the recruiting? <laughs> where, where did that come from, man? <laughs> Sorry. I mean, I, I go back. I think about 2019 was was you know, um, doo doo was hitting the fan, so to speak, and and life was not so brilliant. And 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 now you're the world's best courage coach. How did that happen? So this is one of my favorite stories to share, Ken. And, and uh, this started in September last year. So we're still, I was still in Australia and I was in Russia. I watched a, a YouTube video with a guy called Steve Hardison. Now, Steve Hardison is known as the ultimate coach. He lives in, in Mesa in Arizona. Yep, and Steve's a buddy of mine. He's a, okay, fantastic. So if you haven't heard of Steve Hardison, get on YouTube, H-A-R-D-I-S-O-N, right? And amazing, look up. Amazing, amazing, amazing man. So, so have you seen the Deuce Latouille video that I'm talking about? Yep. Okay. So this is a video that's two hours and 10 minutes long of DNA alteringly good content, right? That's yep. the effect it had on me. And if you watch it and you get 1% of what I got from it, it'll be a blessing. Now, Steve Hardison is a devout Mormon guy. He's yep. 66, and uh, he is an enigma. Like, he, up until recently, never went on podcasts, never, you know, he used to coach, Oprah Winfrey's coach, and he turned down being on the Oprah Winfrey show multiple times. Uh, he just didn't, didn't want to be filmed. He would only coach people at his home, never recorded it, yada, yada. So I watched this video, Ken, and I was so moved by this, and I was like, I need to be in the presence of that man. Very yep. resourceful I am. Got his phone number, and I rang him. He picked up immediately. And I said, uh, Steve Hardison, it's Laban Ditchburn from Melbourne here. He goes, Laban, so great to hear from you. I've been waiting for this call all my life. He's never spoken to me before, by the way. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and I said to him, Steve, I just watched this video with you talking about this Deuce Latouille football guy. And, and I said, I just had one question to ask you. Because I knew this guy was super successful. I knew there's nothing that I had at this point that I could offer him, right, Ken? I just said... Steve, what do you need help with? And he goes, wow, Laban, I really acknowledge you for asking me that question. He goes, you know what? He goes, I'm 8% body fat. I do uh, 10 miles a day. I've got the love of a beautiful woman. I've got everything a man could ever want, but I really want to acknowledge you for asking me that question. I said, oh, no worries, Steve. I said, are you still not going on podcasts? He said, that's right. I said, oh, okay, cool. I said, the reason I ask is I'm a speaker, I'm a coach, and... Uh, and I've got this amazing podcast series and I'm well on my way to being known as the world's most positively influential speaker. But someone that I spoke to that I look up to recently, Steve, said that there's too much ego associated with that statement. And Steve Hardison, a devout Mormon, goes, Laban, you tell that person to fuck off. Oh <laughs> he goes, do you know who I am? And I go, who are you, Steve? He goes, I'm the best coach in the world. And the way he said that, Ken, there was zero ego associated yeah. with that statement, right? Anyone that knows Steve Hardison knows he is the modern-day version of what people imagine Christ would be like. Yeah. And I'm not saying that from a blasphemous point of way. Like, that is the feedback people get. I was so moved by this experience. We got off the phone, 13 minutes, changed my life, and I called a friend of mine, Chris Doris, who features in that video, who's also a magnificent, he's known as the mental toughness coach, done a lot of work with PGA golfers and, and pro ballers, that kind of thing. And I, and I called him up and I said, hey, Chris, I just spoke to Steve Hardison. And he goes, what do you mean? 
And I said, I just called up Steve Addison. We had a good chat for like 30 minutes. He goes, what do you mean? You just called him up and you spoke to Steve Addison. I was like, yeah, what's the big deal? He goes, do you have any idea the gift of courage that you have to bring to the world? And in that moment, Ken was the, the world's best courage coach was created. And at that time, Anna had gone to Russia and I was like, Chris, I need some help now. I don't have any money. Like, he, and he, so he said, all right, here's what we're going to do. And we spent like three hours over a couple of phone calls brainstorming what we're going to do, right? I'd already been known for reaching out and calling people like Les Brown and Brene Brown. And I'd even spoke to Princess Beatrice and a, you know, a number of other amazing people. Wow. And he said, here's what we're going to do. So here was the plan. I had to start cold calling the CEOs of the biggest companies on the planet. And I called Eric Yang from Zoom and we had a brief conversation in his car phone. He couldn't really hear me and understand me that well. And I called Walmart and, and Cisco and a few other companies and it was wow. getting late in, in, in America. So I started calling Australia and I rang this one company, Hodges Real Estate. And I had the cell phone of this guy. And this guy picks up the phone and he says, hi, Tony speaking. I said, Tony Zarka? He said, yes, it is. I said, Tony Zarka, it's Laban Ditchburn from Melbourne, Australia. He goes, oh, hi, Laban. Do we know each other? <laughs> because of the confidence of my voice. I said, Tony, we've never spoken, but today's your lucky day. <laughs> he laughs. He goes, how's it my lucky day, Laban? I said, because, Tony, I'm the world's best courage coach, and I teach your people how to take bold, massive, and strategically courageous action to facilitate miraculous outcomes. That 13-minute phone call with Tony Zarka resulted in me being invited back the following Wednesday to pitch for some training and coaching for his organization, the oldest real estate company in Australia. We jump on a Zoom call because we're still in lockdown at this point, and I ask him one open question about what he wants to do with the business. And he spoke for 45 minutes, Ken. The power is in the listener, as Steve Hardison says, right? I just listened, and I was present, and he told me everything I needed to know about this organization. And I let him finish and I just said, Tony, what about becoming the best real estate company in the state of Victoria? And his eyes widened, Ken, and he looked up and left and he started nodding. And I said, well, if you like that, what about becoming the best real estate company in Australia? And now he's really nodding vigorously, right? Yeah. And I said, Tony, you do realize that in order for you to have the best real estate company in Australia, you need to be the best real estate CEO. And two minutes later, Ken, I had the CEO of this company standing with his hands and his fists in the air, yelling at the top of his lungs, I'm the best real estate CEO in the world. That's so <laughs> awesome, man. And wow. I pitched a quarter of a million dollars worth of training and coaching to this, this organization on that call that went for an hour and 45. And he looked at me and he, he didn't hang up on me. He didn't laugh at me. He didn't scoff. He didn't do anything. He just said... He said, Laban, he said, I physically do not have the liquid to invest in that right now, but let me see what I can do. And, and the, that was the moment in my life that I knew that I could play at the top. And that declaration of the world's best courage coach, which has nothing to do with ego. It's a commitment that I wake up every morning and I say to myself, how would the world's best courage coach conduct himself? And the reason that I wanted to share this story with the moment you realize what you are the best in the world and you make that declaration, watch the world around you change. And the people that you want to kick around with will resonate and vibrate with that in a way that you cannot ever imagine. They start showing up. 
it's just the way it works. Wow, man, what a crazy story. So I've been friends with Steve on, on Facebook for years. And I remember reaching out to him and he's like, I don't do podcasts. I'm like, I really want to get Steve on the show, though. He's a great, great man. And once in a while, he watches my live streams and will comment. So, Steve, if you see this, hello. Um, so, Laban, you have an unbelievable story, man. Like, it, it's incredible. You know, I remember back when my wife and I, we met 13 years ago, and, and we decided she had been downsized from the corporate world, and, and I'm... I've always been an entrepreneur and I, I'm like, you know, let's just partner up and 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 we decided to op open an office. And I had this moment where I had a handful of employees and and um, one day a guy that worked for me comes in and he goes, there's a dude looking in the windows of your, your SUV out in the parking lot. And I'm like, bro, you're bigger than I am. Tell him to get the hell out of here. What, <laughs> like, and he's like, well, he's got it blocked with a tow truck. And I'm like, oh, God. You know, the bank really likes it when you make your payments. Um, and and so I, I, I watched my car get towed away that day in front of all my employees. They were all getting paid. I wasn't. Um, and and I, I, I'll never forget feeling like, what's the point? what's the point of going on? Like, why am I even here on this planet? Like, this is, it was just humiliating and painful. And, you know, for the people who are going through the crap in life that, that just can't figure it out, they, they, maybe their electrics being shut off or they're, they can't buy food. They can't figure it out. Right. What do you say to that person? If they were to, to, to ring you up on the phone and, and what would you say? Like, how do you help them get through to the next moment where, you know, it's going to be better eventually, but they don't, what do you say to them? Maybe I need to be more delicate than this, but I would say to them at some point, no one is coming to save you. Yes. No one. And, and I remember for a long time, Ken, I would, I imagined marrying a wealthy woman who was going to come and rescue me. <laughs> it seems so absurd now, right? Which would have killed any sexual chemistry or any chemistry, right? Been, right? Like, like what a disaster zone. And, but, but knowing that no one is coming to save you is not the same as not asking for help. And a, another great quote from Les, and I'll continue to steal this, he says, ask for help, not so that you appear weak, but ask for help so that you can remain strong and keep asking for help until you get it. Mm. All right. It's very rare that you've done such horrendous things to society that you, there's not a single person that you can reach out to. And there's people by you receiving help, it allows other people to give. And, and that's, that's a cycle when you're in a position to give, you can give, right. But you've got to learn to receive so, so many people that I know put, put everyone else's needs first and they, they do not look after themselves and their lives are a complete disaster zone. And you've got to receive help so that then you can give help. And as I've gotten better at receiving help, so whenever people say to me, Lab, what do you need help with? I've got an answer. I know what I need help with, right? That allows me to, to give. That allows me to be a way more productive member of society. And so 
and and in addition to that, I would also say, Ken, that like, no matter what you've gone through, by you reclaiming ownership of what you've done, what you've experienced, you you've got the most effective, powerful story that you can tell anyone. All right, like you you like you cannot teach that at college. You cannot substitute that. And, and it's your new gift. It's your new superpower. All the major adversity that I went through in my life yeah. battle-hardened me for all this other stuff. By the time COVID hit, like, I was ready. I was ready to handle it. Mentally, I was able to get through it really well. I know a lot of people that ended their own lives as a result. They weren't, they weren't battle-hardened enough. Yeah. You know? Wow. I, I, yeah, I get it. I, get, I totally get it. I'm, I think that... Um, you know, people people have a tendency of giving up too easily, and and you know, I don't under. I always say, what's? I mean, you got to keep going. What's the alternative? Like, there's there's no other alternative. I mean, I guess you could end your life, but that sucks for the people that actually care about you. You know, so um, dude, well, when you when you understand, and sorry to cut you off. No, go Jim, ahead. Just when you understand. When you're able to share your story with someone, you don't need to have come out the other side of it and be completely healed. And there's a great anecdote with Frank Abagnale and Catch Me If You Can, right? That great movie with Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. If you haven't seen it, go and watch it. has got Tom Hanks in there as well. And he was 17, and then this kid, this based on true true life story, well, supposedly, taught a whole semester of school when he was 17. And they interviewed him years later. They said, Frank, how did you do that? And he said, I just read the lesson book and it was one lesson ahead. And that's all you need to be, all right? It's not about telling people what to do, but when people want help and they're asking for guidance and you can share your, your experience, your, your own part of that, and if they derive something from that that's going to help them, then that's you doing God's work. That's the kind of fulfillment and purpose that I receive in my life now. When people read the book that I've never met, and they send me a message saying, hey, what you wrote changed my life or saved my life in some cases. That's what life's all about. Amen, brother. I, I, I totally agree with you. People don't understand that the, the pain. Who was it that said um, your turn your. Um, I, I, it just it just left me the, the basically the pain you're going through eventually could save somebody else you just have to keep going through it and and get through it and and someday your story is going to help save somebody else without any shadow of any doubt it will improve the lives and the thing that you don't think about right is that if you share something with someone that allows them to heal a decade earlier than what they would have if they hadn't been exposed to you and then that person goes on to be the CEO of a huge multinational or they go on to be a wildly influential per person. Like you're impacting indirectly millions and billions of lives. That's Amen. this amazing butterfly effect that you can have. Amen. I agree. How, what's your, uh, I should have asked you before we got on, what's your website? Do you have a website address? Yeah, you can just get me at labanditchburn.com, baby. It's got links to everything. And Laban is L-A-B-A-N which means yogurt in Arabic. It does? explains why I'm so cultured, Ken. <laughs> and ditch burn as in dig a ditch and burn. There, <laughs> there you is. go. There you go. Labandichburn.com. 
Wow. It's got links to the books and the podcast and the, I do coaching and, and whatever you need, you can get it on there. And where's the best place on social media for people to follow you? Well, I've got a really talented social media guy who's, who's doing well on Instagram. It all gets sort of reposted on Instagram and LinkedIn and Facebook at the moment. And, uh, it, whatever, whatever suits your style. I think yeah. there is a TikTok account as well. It's all under Laban Ditchburn Inc. I-N-C. Awesome. Laban, thank you so much for coming on today, sharing your story, your wisdom. Is there anything else that you would like to share with the audience before we end this? Yeah, I would, Ken. And I thank you for the opportunity to say something at the end. If, uh, if you've watched anything more than half a second of what Ken has put out over the years and you've benefited from it, let him know. Put a comment, send him an email, send him a text if you've got his number. Let him know that what he's doing is, is having an impact on your life. There's too many of these amazing people that I meet. People incorrectly and automatically assume that they're getting all the accolades that they need. And this, this is a lonely job at times. It's a lonely job. And it's not about stroking an ego, it's about momentum. We all love being acknowledged for the work that we're doing and this, this is, can be a really lonely job at times. So let Ken know, subscribe, review, like support him in any way that, that resonates with you. That's what I would say to you, Ken. That's so awesome, man. Thank you for that. I appreciate you saying that. It is sometimes lonely. <laughs> he's not lying so Laban thank you so much everybody go to LabanDitchburn.com check out his book check out his podcast subscribe Laban you're awesome man thank you for coming on today sharing your story and, and so much love if you'll stay with me I'm going to end the live stream but I want to say thank you to everybody who's watched and shared this out and um, make sure you go follow Laban everywhere. This guy's got, man, there's a lot more coming from you. I feel it. Love you, brother. I appreciate you tremendously. Thanks for having me. Love you too. Thank you, man.